we're probably going to see something called a CBO, Chief Brand Officer, moving into the very top levels of a company, and maybe even in some companies paired up with a CEO so that one manages the internal and shareholder side of things and the other one manages the customers and they negotiate all their decisions together. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I am talking to Marty Newmeyer, And Marty is the author of Brand Gap, which in itself was a successful book because he got it to number 15 on Amazon All Books. And that meant he had a platform to turn it into a series of lectures or workshops, which he did. And he created a slide deck. And unbeknownst to him, one of his students in one of his workshops uploaded it to a thing he didn't know existed called SlideShare. And two years later, he found himself on SlideShare to find that, in fact, the slide share slide deck that had been uploaded was number one in SlideShare and had been number one on SlideShare for two years. It remains very popular in SlideShare and has now had 24 million views, which most business books are successful if 10,000 people read them. And so 24 million people puts Marty in a bracket of his own. Today we talk about what is brand? We have a canter through the history of marketing and we talk about what it might mean for a CEO of a business thinking about their brand and how branding isn't marketing, how branding overlaps with customer experience and what some stepping stones might be to create a customer tribe, to get your customers to feel something about your business and how to use brand to shorten your sales cycle, to sell more things at higher profit. And really, that's Marty's essence of brand, more things at higher profit. And we've got some examples that we talk about, and we've got some book, fantastic book recommendations. So I had a great time talking to Marty, a bit longer episode than usual. I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. I'm Marty Neumeyer. I'm an author and a brand consultant in the area of brand design and innovation, and uh, I've written eight or nine books now, uh, depending on how you count them, on branding. And today, I, uh, in addition to my work at uh, Liquid Agency, where I'm a, I do CEO branding, I also have a company called Level C, training people up through five levels of brand strategy, uh, which we do around the world. So myself and a partner. What's brand strategy? How do you define brand and brand strategy? Well, let's start with brand because that's where people go wrong. They think of branding as, uh, you know, kind of in an old, very old way, which is uh, marking products and companies with trademarks, you know, logos and stuff like that. So that's kind of the, mo- the most primitive understanding of, of branding. And certainly identification is part of branding. But uh, a brand is really something that exists in customers' minds. Okay, so it's a customer's perception or a gut feeling is probably more accurate. A gut feeling of a product, service, or company. And the reason I like to define it like that is because it helps you understand where the work is. If you're trying to build a brand, you build it in people's heads, individual people's heads. So that's the playing field for branding. It's not in the advertising agency or uh, you know design firm or the marketing department of a company it doesn't exist there it exists in people's heads and it's the duty of the company to figure out how to 
to encourage people to think about the company or the brand in ways that benefit everybody. Obviously the company, but also customers and society if you want your brand to last a long time. So that's brand. Branding is any activity that um, designed to build a brand. Brand strategy is the specific way you do it, and it's meant to outmaneuver competitors with their efforts to build their brand. It must be very difficult for lots of people to get their heads around the fact that brand exists in the minds only of, or the guts of customers. It, it really is. And, and, and you said it, it's, it's more based in the emotions of customers than in their heads. And of course, everyone thinks they uh, make their purchasing decisions and their alliances with various products in a logical way, you know, like in a practical, rational way. But that's not how humans actually behave. So we do a lot through intuition and catching signals about things, you know, like we might say that, oh, look, my friends are all buying Teslas. So if I want to be cool and be part of that tribe of people, then I need a Tesla. Or maybe I'll get something else that's even cooler than a Tesla and I'll show them. So that's more like the way people really make decisions. Because if people made decisions logically, the Pepsi taste challenge would have meant that Pepsi was the number one cola on the planet. Yeah, they would have won. Everybody <laughs> would have just switched to Pepsi. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, science wins again. <laughs> they, said, they said, oh, yeah, no, you're right. It does taste better. Oh, you're right. You have proved to me that I preferred it, but I'm just going to go buy Coke. Right, because Pepsi is more than the taste. Pepsi is a lot of things to people, and those things have meaning for people. So really, it's about the um, design of meaning, in a sense, that happens in customers' heads. Now, that's pretty sophisticated stuff, and that's why it's difficult to wrap your head around it, but it's also just makes you not even want to like think about it. It's, it's hard. It's hard stuff. It's advanced. I spoke to the sales director and the CEO of a business last year, and I said to him, what makes your business different? And they sat and they looked at me and they looked at each other and they looked back at me and several minutes went by and they went, nothing. And at the heart of that, I thought was maybe their sales challenge. I think if I'd said you need a brand, their heads might have exploded. Yeah, because they would have said what? Uh, all that design stuff and colors and type faces and fonts and everything that's going to help me. That's going to save me because they're thinking about it in the wrong way. Um, they're not thinking of it in a modern all inclusive way. So why do we even call it branding? If it's so different than what we used to think of as branding, it's just because there's no better way of thinking about it. We need, we need a word that means managing your customers and managing your reputation with your customers. So brand is the closest thing to that. So we just have to expand our definition of, of branding. So, you know, really branding is about getting more people to buy more stuff for more years at a higher price. Ah, the secret to profitability. Yeah. I mean, we, it's a long-term investment in your company. So there's that book called Built to Last that everybody loved. Um, you know, if you want your company to last, you need customer loyalty. And the really good thing about branding is that brands last longer than customers. So since a brand is a sort of shared belief about a company, those beliefs just go on and on. They get passed along from person to person. And even if you lose your customer, your brand will keep going. So it creates a lot of stability for a company. You know, you could have a, something happen in the market where, you know, there's a scandal or something attached to your company. And, you know, if you have loyal customers, they'll, they'll stick with you through the whole thing. I mean, I, I think if Apple, for example, has a scandal attached to it, they're not going to lose more than 5 10% of their customers. And they'll probably come back because there's so much goodwill with Apple. The brand is so strong um, and it's so important to people's lives that they will forgive them. So that's a brand where... The value of the brand is probably 60, 70, 75% of their market capitalization, you know, when they measure it. So it's all about that relationship they have with customers. Well, and it's, they have, I think it's something like 7% of the smartphone market, but 70% of the profitability. If those numbers aren't quite right yet today, that they're directionally correct. 
and that's the power of that's the power of their brand it's about selling more things to more people for more years at a higher price now some companies say yeah but our whole business is based on discounts okay that's an exception so if discounting is your your main point of difference then you have to live or die on that that's going to be your differentiator so in that case, you want to do that as well as you can. So a good, good example of that has been how Target, um, it's a U.S. company, Target has won by not only having the lowest prices, but having the highest design ambitions. So their products are more designed than the other cheap products out there, um, which you know separates them and really makes people happy. Like, I, I'm not rich, but I can afford a well-designed product. Yeah, well, and, you know, IKEA do the same thing, don't they? They do, yeah, a good example there. Yeah, IKEA is great. IKEA, you know, took a risk. They said, look, we're going to turn everybody into do-it-yourselfers. So um, you're going to have to do the work, folks, but you're going to get high design and a low price. Uh, so they traded... Compromise. Yeah, the, the instant satisfaction of getting a sofa that's already put together, or a cabinet, let's say. Uh, for doing the work, and somehow they made a like <laughs> made it into a virtue. You know, they make you feel like you're really smart to be able to put this stuff together, and they do that <laughs> by having really clear instructions. Not clear enough for me. I can still mess it up. Great example of a disruptive uh, business model. But they're both both Apple and IKEA. Look, they're big companies. You know, billions of dollars. So if you're a smaller business, uh, where do you start thinking about? about your brand do you have to think about the tribe and creating a tribe or you do you have to think about these days you have to think about the tribe first or concurrently with your idea i mean the best way i think this is a very very good example how do you build a brand from scratch okay what you first have to understand is that today customers really run companies you know not literally in terms of managing them but without customer support, you're nowhere. You can't force your product down people's throats like you used to be able to do with TV advertising. Advertising was sort of the way you got new products into the market. You just spent a lot of money on advertising, just forced it into their brains. And if they liked the product, they'd stick with it. So it was pretty simple, kind of brutal. Today, you need the help of your customers to succeed. So what you want to do is have them involved from the beginning. So you find a group of... Um, customers whose lives you can enhance with your product in some small way and you kind of build the product with them in mind and you test it with them and you make a few people really happy and you try to find the people that are the most vocal about your product and work with those and you build it up from there so it's kind of like instead of divide and conquer which is how companies used to do it they used to say well, how big is the market you know let's segment it let's find our segment and we'll attack that now it's more like you multiply and conquer. You know, you, you find a few people who are fans of your product and they'll tell other people and through social media, it grows out like that and you have to listen to them all the time. So that's how you do it. And of course, all the usual things apply, you know, having a good differentiated position, right? You can't just do what everybody else is doing. Following the leader will never make you a leader. By definition, you can't do it. You have to start someplace else. And when you're a startup, uh, it's really important to know how you're different, right? I mean, the smaller the company, the more specialized you have to be. So um, you want to find something that you do that nobody else does in the minds of your customers and make that really beautiful and attractive and then build it out from there. And as you grow, you can add more complexity to it, but you still it still pays to be focused on your differentiated position, your you know, your specialty. That's how it works. So if you're, you know, if you're um if you're trying to run a store in the middle of the country, you probably are going to have a country store with everything in it, a little bit of everything, right? If you're trying to run a store in New York City, you're going to have to focus on, you know, Parmesan cheese, <laughs> you know, all Parmesan all day, you know. If you want a niche that nobody else has. Yeah, if you want to compete with uh, the huge firms, you know, that have 
discounted prices and everything. So that's how it works. So the smaller you are, the more specialized you need to be. Pick something uh, nobody else uh, thought of or that nobody else thought of in your area or you do better than anybody else. Make it, Keep it very focused and just put all your effort into that. And pay attention to customers as you build it because they're going to be your best friends. They're, they're the boss, really. So you have to find that tribe. You have to build that tribe that's going to support you come hell or high water. That's what you're looking for. Does that work in, I mean, I can see how that works in B2C and social media, but does that does that work in B2B? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the only real difference in branding between B2C and B2B is that B2B tends to be quieter in terms of, you know, the, the branding efforts can be less visible, right? You're not going to be doing national TV commercials probably if you're B2B. Uh, you may be if you're really big. Um, it's going to be more in the areas of uh, sales, let's say, like how you sell, how you organize your offering, how your partnerships that you make, the quality of your relation, business relationships. You know, I, I've had clients that billion dollar clients that only have six customers, you know, in Silicon Valley. And they say, well, do we really need branding? It's like, well, what are you doing now? Well, you know, we're we spend a lot of time with our customers and we help them um, design solutions to their problem. I custom design them. I go, well, that's branding. <laughs> you know, that's totally branding. So your relationships, uh, those sort of sales slash engineering relationships that you have with customers where you help them solve their problems, that's huge. Like if you mess that up, you're going to lose one sixth of your business, right? You lose one of those clients. The branding in that case is going to be focused on, I don't know, training employees and things like that. It's not going to be TV commercials and color systems. You know, uh, It's not going to be retail stores, but it's all branding. So that's customer experience, uh, which can obviously have an impact on how the customer feels about you and perceives you as a business. But now you've, I'm just thinking about some of, some of the CEOs who might be listening to it. And it's like, oh, God, now branding's customer experience as well. I thought it was just marketing. I thought I could just leave branding in the marketing department. No, okay. Now I'm going to say something that's really going to twist their heads around. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Um, but this is, you know, sort of where this is all heading. Think about your business as a double helix, like the DNA model, right? You've got these two twisty strands that intertwine and uh, looks like a ladder, like a twisted ladder. Okay, so that's a good way to think about your business. So one of those strands is business. And if you went to business school, you know, you got your MBA, you know what business is. It's the same thing we've all been taught. You know, it's um, all those departments like manufacturing and HR and uh, marketing and R&D and all those things that you have to manage. That's all internal stuff. And you have a handle on that. It's not easy, but, you know, you know what it is. So what's that other strand that's woven through that? That is the view from the outside that all your customers have. And since that's what they know about you, it's as important as everything you're doing inside. You know, you can think about business as a contract, you know, sort of implied contract between the company and its customers. So you need to have those things be equal. They need to be intertwined and they need to be connected like a ladder all the way up and down. If any of those rungs are broken, like what's happening in the company doesn't match what people think is happening outside the company, you've got a broken brand that has to be fixed. Um, you've got a disconnect. It's really as simple as that and as difficult as that. So how do you manage something that's equally difficult and important as all that other stuff you've been managing? And I think what we're going to see is as we understand this better, the importance of managing customers, the whole customer side of the business, we're probably going to see something called a CBO, Chief Brand Officer, moving into the very top levels of a company to manage all that stuff. And maybe even in some companies paired up with a CEO so that one manages the internal and shareholder side of things and the other one manages the customers and they negotiate all their decisions together, like a marriage almost. And that may seem pretty extreme. I think when I first thought of it a few years ago, I thought, wow, that's that's a big change for business. But we have models for that already. And, and one of them is Apple. You know, so Steve Jobs, you know, was nominally the head of 
you know, C- CEO of Apple, but really he acted as a CBO. All the things he cared about, all the things he worked on that made Apple so successful were brand things. So that includes the products themselves, the relationships with the whole community, you know, customers and um, developers and everybody like that and the, the world in general. All the communications, so the ad campaigns, he was really involved in all the ads and all the rollouts and launches and all that sort of stuff. That is all brand stuff. And it's super important. And that's how he was able to build such a loyal following, a loyal uh, tribe of customers. So I think as we understand that better, we're going to see that position of being a CBO being really important. And uh, there are already people calling themselves that. So um, I think it's just a matter of a few years before it's a thing, before it's like, if you want to be successful, someone has to step up to the plate and manage that whole thing. And maybe it's the CEO doing everything. Do you think Jeff Bezos does that at Amazon as well? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, he's definitely more on the business side. He's very practical and technical, and he's all about growth, grow, grow, grow. He tends to not do as well with the brand side, but he's so strong on the business side that it's he's killing it. So one thing he did do right, he planned for the long term. He refused to let investors take profits in the beginning. He really said, no, we're, we're just going to keep investing in this company in growth. Um, so it just build, 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 you know, for, for him. I would say more like uh, the, the equivalent or the sort of similar person to to Steve Jobs is uh, Elon Musk in sort of Steve Jobs' earlier days. He's a little bit out of control, but he's definitely a figurehead for the company. He's got tons of energy and he's managing the brand. You can argue that he's not always doing it very well, but he's coming up with products that stun people in their you know sophistication and innovation. Uh, he's building them like crazy. He's delighting people with a lot of the products. So he's got the kind of a natural talent for it. Well, and also the uh, valuation of the business driven by brand rather than business fundamentals. Yeah. But, you know, that can be dangerous, right? If you if you build a, a really valuable brand and, every, and your whole worth is based on that, if that brand takes a hit, you could lose a lot of money in a hurry. But uh, it's still... The easiest ROI you'll ever get is investing in brand right now. And so you you run a brand strategy training, level C, I think you said. What you take people through level one to level five? What what does? Uh... Yeah, okay. So it's basically giving people the framework so that they can um, build their skills into these areas and take over these responsible roles. Starting with the lowest level, which is just what is branding? How do we define it? Where do you fit? Like whatever your skills you have, you can fit them into a brand framework and make them more valuable. So you can weaponize your skills really by know, by understanding branding. That applies to you know employees, uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs. Everybody needs to know how this all works. How you know a, a general idea of how it works, um, so that they can take advantage of it. So that's. And then, then the other thing is we teach all these people who bring their different skills and knowledge sets to these classes, we, we teach them how to collaborate, how to respect each other's contribution so that they can all work together. So that's level one. Level two drills down into brand strategy, which today is very, very little different than business strategy. It's almost the same. They overlap so much. And so, but brand strategy is the more difficult to get your head around unless you're trained in, in branding. So if you trained as a traditional MBA, you probably need to know more about this, the whole brand strategy thing. So we got a class built on that. These are just two day intensive classes. So they're not like, we're not sticking with you and teaching you everything you need to know. You just get, here's, here's the field you need to conquer. And now take that and, and apply your skills to that. So um, you learn to be a brand strategist. From there, you need to learn more complicated, complex management skills. And that's, we call that being a brand architect, where it's more three-dimensional and you've got multiple products and brands that you're managing to the benefit of the company. And then the next level is you learn to be a brand instructor. And the reason you learn that is because you, as you probably know, if you really want to learn something deeply, teach it. 
So we get people to teach these things and really like force them to confront what they know and what they don't know, and also to build those presentation skills so that they can um, persuade teams of people inside a business to go in the same direction and build the brand together. So once you've done that, you're ready to go to the top level, which we're calling brand master, and that is preparing you to be a CBO or in some cases, a thought leader on this subject. But mostly CBOs is where the most of the um, the need is going to be, I think. Uh, and I think there's going to be quite a bit of uh, compensation for that position in companies. I mean, you know, stunning compared to sort of being like a marketing director or something like that. So it's a good thing, actually a good thing for marketing directors to think about. Marketing directors tend these days to be more tactical. They're their whole focus is like the next quarter's results, um, you know, getting that ad campaign to produce results. It's it's very kind of like now, <laughs> revenues now. And that doesn't really leave you much time to be designing the future of the company. So if a marketing director has these sort of a natural ability in the strategic end and wants to be more strategic, I think shooting towards a, you know, becoming a a CBO is a really good path for that person because you'd have a lot of the sort of management skills, the business connecting, you know, customers with the business, those kind of skills would be in place. You just need to be more strategic and think bigger. You have to you know, sit at the big table. Being more tactical, what do people get wrong around naming or logos or? Uh, naming, yeah, naming is interesting because it's probably the most important touch point what we call a touch point. That's what anything that touches anything about the company that customers come in contact with. And the first thing they're going to come in contact with probably is hearing the name or reading the name. So it's important. It's not life or death. Like you can get it a little bit wrong and be okay. But I, I have a, I have a few tips for people that are naming right now and want to think about this. Uh, the first one is completely practical and easy once you know what it is. <laughs> and what it is, is don't make your name more than four syllables. Four, exactly four. Four is the limit, apparently, that people will pronounce over any period of time. If it's five syllables or six, what they will do is they will abbreviate your name they'll give it a nickname or they'll turn it into initials and and if they do that then any meaning that was in your name sort of flies out the window uh, for people who don't know who you are so for example uh, a name that was too long is um, international business machines so international business machines 10 syllables okay 10 syllables ibm <laughs> everyone's going to call it ibm What's wrong with IBM? Well, now nothing because we know what it is. But, you know, for anybody who didn't know what IBM was, it's just three letters. You know, I mean, if you, if you end up in a position where your name is initials, that's like the worst place to be. That's a name that is not helping you. That doesn't mean you're going to die or go out of business or anything like that. It just means it's not helping. It's not helping the brand. Another example of one that turned out okay was Federal Express. So Federal Express, that's five syllables, one over. It's not four, it's five. So people called it FedEx. FedEx is a, is a pretty good name. You know, you can figure out what FedEx is about. It sounds good, makes a nice, nice easy logo. Uh, it, were, it worked out okay, but it wasn't the way I would do it. Let's <laughs> just say. Cat food, for example, there's a, there's a cat food brand called Yukonuba. And I won't even try to spell it for you. Nobody can spell it. And the competitor is Meow Mix. So <laughs> Meow Mix, three syllables, Yukonuba, okay, four, it's at the limit. But it's you can't pronounce it. You can't spell it. You don't know what it means. And you know that Meow Mix is the cat food that cats ask for by name. So easy, <laughs> easy winner, right? So you think... Think about like the way names are used, how you can turn them into messaging and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a sophisticated endeavor, and uh, that's why they have naming companies to help you through all this stuff, and still they get it wrong. So uh, in my book, The Brand Gap, and also in my book, Zag, my first two books, I give the, the whole list of, uh, I think it's on my website too, martynewmeyer.com. You can just go there and see uh, Good Names and Bad Names, I think it's called, and it gives you the, the seven criteria for a name than examples of good and bad ones. Very good. And uh, what about logos? 
How do you make people feel something about your logo? Yeah, logos are are the next most important thing. And it used to be when I was a younger designer, when I was a designer, back in the 70s, people would pay, you know, large companies would pay up to a half a million dollars for a logo. So that's how important they believed it was. And there's still people that do that. But for most companies, they're like, oh, logos don't matter, um, or I can get one. They matter, but I don't want to pay to pay very much for it. So they always say, well, how much, how much should I pay for a logo? What's a logo worth? And I think a really good rule of thumb for a logo is you should spend about as much as you're spending on a car. That's how much your logo should cost. It just works out that way. So you can get a car for $50 and you can get a logo for $50, but it's going to be a junker. It may get you to the next, you know, stage of your business, but you know, it's going to be a lot of trouble. It's not going to help. It's not going to make you look good. Um, you can also, you know, get an Aston Martin for a quarter of a million dollars or pounds. I don't know what they are. What are they in, in the UK? Expensive. Expensive, yeah. And you'll get a fine machine. Do you need that much? Well, maybe not, but maybe you're rich. You know, maybe it's a big company. Why not get the best? So um, that's about the range. And I think for medium-sized companies, they should be spending like $25,000, $30,000 or pounds on getting the logo, getting a good logo from a reputable design firm that has a track record of doing this kind of work. And a good uh, firm will build that logo on a differentiated promise from a company. In other words, it'll, it'll take into consideration the name, the audience, the competitors, what do their logos look like, right? How do we differentiate from those in a way that's meaningful? Um, how do we design something that'll work at any size, any situation, uh, maybe that can be adaptable and actually can, you know, um, I call these avatars where a logo can actually start dance around or do stuff or change and still be the logo. Um, there's a lot of things you can do, but, you know, you have to spend time with it. It should be custom made. If your company's built on a differentiated proposition, then your logo should reflect that, right? It shouldn't just be generic. And then there's just the aesthetics of doing a logo that really looks great and has some, it has all the history of design behind it, you know, of modern design. Those kind of logos tend to look good for a longer period of time. So if you're in it for the long term, you know, spend the money to get an aesthetically rich trademark and it'll probably look, it won't look rich. It'll just look so simple and just never get tired you know it'll go forever so a lot of logos have that already you're seeing right now a lot of talk about the bmw logo it's being uh, the badge for the cars being redesigned and uh, there's a lot of buzz about that and um, the problem with that is that the logo itself was never very good it was just kind of a handmade amateur hour logo that just got passed down and so it became so identified with the car that now people love it. And then when you make a change to it, they freak out. Say, oh, what happened to my BMW company? It's fine. It's all going to be fine because BMW's reputation is uh, so solid and people know what it is that really they just need to signal to people that they're going in a new, better, higher direction than they were before. And that's what a logo change can do for you. So they're doing that. But um, if you were designing their logo from scratch and their name, you wouldn't call it BMW. You'd call it something else that people could remember and meant something. And then you would give it a logo that actually had some aesthetic qualities to it, just built into it. Tesla started from Tesla. scratch. <laughs> yeah, Tesla, right. And so Tesla is the one they're afraid of, right? All the German companies are like, we're getting killed by Tesla and it hasn't even shown up yet. How how dangerous they are to us, but it's going to get really bad. So we need to express to everybody that we're on a track to be more innovative. So Germany's like getting the innovation bug now, uh, and it's about time. <laughs> I mean, you must uh, you must sit there and look at uh, a whole host of brands across the United States and think, you know, in different industries, thinking that that particular people are doing you know a really great job. Who who uh, who have you seen that you think you know great job? Wow. So many, but not not across the board. They're always like in some spots, they're really good. Other spots are not so good. Uh, well, we're on the car um, the, on the car theme there. This goes back a ways, but I, I still think of it as a very good introduction. And that is the Mini 
in the United States, and I'm not sure how it went over in the UK. Looks like it did well, but in the US, I mean, the design of the car was beautiful, perfect, surprising. Uh, it's a well-made car. They did it at a time when um, everyone was focused on SUVs, so it became like a disruptive force. It's like you know, the enemy was the SUV, and then they they used that very well in their uh, promotion of the car. So they would do things like strap a or bolt a, a mini on top of a big SUV, and the mini wouldn't even come to the it wouldn't even exceed the roof of the SUV, the big <laughs> SUV, and they drive it into a uh, like a shopping center and just leave it there for everyone to puzzle over, <laughs> uh, just to show the difference. Or or another one they did in in shopping malls was they would park a mini in the middle of a like a piazza or a plaza or something in a shopping mall. And then they put like a giant oversized trash can next to it, like you would find in a shopping mall, except maybe twice as big to me, you know, for scale. And uh, since scale is hard in an open space, people will go, well, that is, that is really a small car. <laughs> and then they walk up and they look at, they have to be looking up at the trash, trash can when they got there. Um, so it's just using uh, wit very well, um, using guerrilla advertising, not using, not spending a ton of money on, I don't think they spent any money on TV advertising, but they used billboards, which are cheap. Um, and the coolest thing they did is they, instead of targeting, instead of talking about the car only, like most car companies would, they talked about the people who would drive the car. They described the sort of person that they wanted in their customer base. They designed their customers is what they did. And they got those customers. So even though the car is owned by BMW, which is their customers are known for being aggressive and just really ambitious, aggressive people, <laughs> uh, fast drivers, you know, <laughs> egotistical guys and stuff in their 20s, 30s. They went the other way with the Mini and they said, you know, Mini drivers are the kind of person that doesn't get bothered by people who want to cut in in front of them. They just slow down and let them in. <laughs> um, because many drivers are not driving they're motoring they're just cruising around you know they're enjoying their car they don't need to like you know prove anything <laughs> so all these like definitions of what the uh, customer was was like very appealing and different and i think that showed the way to modern branding to sort of give some perspective to this this whole thing of how we market and the comment you made about experience being, oh no, I have to worry about experience too. So if you look at the history of marketing, just a quick thumbnail view of it, back in say 1900, you know, companies trying to get ahead of each other, like competing with each other, they have to think of like, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? And the differentiation tended to be features. Like we've got features that the other guy doesn't have. And so you should buy, buy that product from us. Um, and that worked really well because like you zeroed in on not just saying, here's a product, like here's a gener generic product, but this one has features, you know, special features that you're going to like. For example, um, there's a salt, just a table salt brand in the U.S. called Morton uh, that's been number one forever. And it got number one because they started to talk about features back in about 1900. They said, we've got this <laughs> chemical that we put in the, uh, in the salt. Um, just makes it easy, easier to use. And so they talked about the chemical and they also put it in a package, like a box, a little cylinder box, cylinder shaped box. Um, so you didn't have to just scoop it into a bag. It just made it more convenient. So they had actually two features, the chemical and the, and the box. After a while, everybody in business caught onto this whole feature thing. Like, yeah, we need to have features too. And so they talk about their features and smart companies would say, we just can't get ahead by just talking about features. Everybody has features. What are we going to do? Oh, I got it. We're going to talk about benefits. So maybe around 1925, some smart companies said, it's not about the features. It's what the features do for you. It's the benefits that you get from it. And so for the salt company, they said, well, the salt doesn't stick together anymore. You buy our salt and you don't have to be breaking it up with a ice pick to get it to pour out of the salt container because it's got this chemical and it pours. And so then on the package, they have uh, an illustration of a little girl who's walking down the street and she's got an umbrella, it's raining. She's carrying a package of Morton salt under her arm home to her mother and the salt is pouring out of the package. She doesn't know it's opened and it's all pouring out. 
horrible, right? She's going to lose all the salt before she gets home. And underneath it says, um, when it rains, it pours. Now, that's still on the package, but nobody cares about that. They just know Morton salt is the best salt ever. They just think that. And it all goes back to when they had this benefit of when it rains, it pours. So after a bit, other companies said, wow, we got to have benefits. We, let's, let's focus on benefits. All the advertising agencies were focused on benefits, benefits, benefits. And that worked really well uh, for a while till say 1950. And then um, like everybody's talking about benefits, it's getting hard to make a difference with benefits. So the next thing they thought of was experience. It's the experience that you get from the benefits that's going to make your life better, easier, all that kind of stuff. So we talk always talking about like how it's going to make your life easier and so forth. That's all the experience stuff. And now we're fully booked on this experience thing. We're like, totally all in on uh, experience and their experience managers, experience designers, everybody's experience, experience. So that's what's happening now. Uh, but that started in the fifties. And uh, so we're, we're moving beyond the experience thing because everyone now can talk about experience very well. And now, now we're moving into an area which I'll call identity, customer identity. And that gets into tribes that asks the question, if I buy this product, what does that make me? Who am I? Who am I joining? How is my life going to be better as a result of engaging with this company? So it's getting much more sophisticated about that. And we're, we're still like we're talking about features and benefits and products when we really should be talking about customers' lives. So that's the thing that everyone is going to have to learn in the near future. And that's that, that, well, that goes absolutely right back to what you said at the beginning, that your definition of brand was your brand you don't own your brand your brand exists in the guts of the people that the tribe that you that you serve and that absolutely comes back to that identity because almost the the people who are buying your product are defining for themselves what it means to them to buy your product or service right they don't want to be told how it's important for them this is really key this is why why advertising is traditional advertising is in big trouble because um People always hated it, <laughs> but they tolerated it if it was funny enough, right? Uh, entertaining enough. But now they're like, I don't really believe anything you say. So um, if you give them some obvious facts that anybody can uh, prove for themselves and let that be the basis of the story that they tell, now you've got something. You've got your audience is your advertising army, Right, they're going to be telling people how great your product is because you've given them the raw materials to build that story from. If you do the opposite and tell them what they should be telling everybody else, dictate it to them, they'll reject that because they don't want to be dictated to. They want to tell the stories, and they have the power. You know, they have the social media power. Well, you can see that in uh, you know the the tale of Brexit and Donald Trump. This is how I want to feel. Don't give me the facts. Don't confuse me with uh, with your version of the facts because it's not about the facts. Well, it never was. And good people in advertising, you know, smart people in advertising. I'm not sure anybody in advertising is good. <laughs> but I was in advertising, so I can, I can say that. And I loved being in advertising. It's so much fun because you're pay playing this cat and mouse game with customers um, and trying to play fair. Uh, makes it even more challenging. But I, I think today, um, traditional advertising is not the way to go. And that's why branding is becoming more important because branding is kind of more about customers' lives and the meaning of your company to them. It's uh, And advertising plays a part in that, but it's it's not the main way you drive a product into the culture. Okay. Marty, that's been an absolutely fascinating canter through branding and why branding is important. If you look back over your career, is there is there a thing that you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? There's one thing I've been thinking about lately, and this is just related to me. Um, so I'm not offering this as uh, everybody, the solution to everybody's problem, but I was one of these people that was very um, ambitious when I was young. And just wanted to get out there and do my thing right before anybody else, like be the first on my block to start a business or, you know, in my case, become a famous designer. 
all of which I was able to do after a fashion. And now that I look back at it, I say, what was the hurry? <laughs> you know, it's like we overestimate what we can do in a day and then we underestimate what we can do in a year. And I just think if you're calmly focused on your art, whatever it is, whether your art is business or sales or or real art, like writing novels or, you know, painting, whatever your art is, focus on that and just steadily work at it, steadily learn about it, learn about how you can take what's special about you, your differentiation, and apply that to the bigger world and just work on that. And you'll make a lot of progress and you won't see very much in a day, but in a year you'll see some. In a lifetime, you'll see probably... I've reinvented myself like five times now, about every 10 years. And I never th thought that would happen. Um, so I would say that uh, don't be in a huge hurry. It's not going to help you. Just be thoughtful and stay focused. It's like if you can stay focused on the work you're doing in, in the world and your relationships with people and so forth, you're going to be just great. You'll have a great life. You'll look back and say, that was great. And if you don't, and you're just focused on surface things like prestige or making a lot of money, you're going to always feel like you just never got it. <laughs> so that's my, that's my grandfatherly advice. That's your advice to your younger self. Yes. To my younger self. Yes. Thanks, granddad. <laughs> <laughs> granddad Marty. <laughs> <laughs> um, and along the way, what, uh, what books have you read that have had an influence on you that you think other people should pick up and read? Well, the ones that really had an influence on me are old enough now where I probably wouldn't necessarily recommend them. But I was um, influenced by a book called The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler back in the 80s that explained how the world was changing in terms of technology. And I had no idea when I read this. I was just like, oh, my gosh. It caused me to move to Silicon Valley from a very beautiful, quiet, lovely town uh, in Southern California that I was really enjoying. I just could not be part of this whole thing that was happening with personal computers and technology. So um, my wife and I packed up the child and the pets and moved to Silicon Valley. It was a wrenching, difficult change, but that just shows you how powerful a book can be if it speaks to you. So that, that one, I think today there are books that really make me think, look, there's one called Surveillance Capitalism that is all about how companies like Google and Facebook are mining our information for free and how we don't seem to mind it, but we will because the the damage to our um, society is going to be really pronounced and everyone will have to share in that. And so just understanding that is really important. And I know you and I have talked about it in terms of, I don't want to be on Gmail just because I don't want to sign up for what's happening there with uh, just like taking, you know, surveilling all your emails. And I'm guessing you don't have a Facebook account. I don't have a Facebook account. I never really liked the people that started it. And I just, <laughs> you know, where, whereas I liked, you know, I liked the people that started Apple and I liked the people that started Google. I thought they started with good intentions. I think the wrong turn for a lot of these companies was um, monetizing what they did through through advertising, through selling to third parties, selling your information to third parties. And, and this is how advertising is actually staying in business is by engaging in that stuff. Um, and it's pretty underhanded stuff. So it's essentially now about manipulating people with finer and finer precision um, so that nothing you get online for free is not tailored for you in a, some way to change your mind or to get you to buy something. And that's much more insidious than just being hit by posters and billboards and TV commercials and like it was in the 50s and 60s. So I think it's, it's good to um, read about that stuff and understand it um, because there's, uh, there are solutions that you can make businesses out of, you know, if you think about it. So I wrote a lot about this subject of the f <laughs> how to deal with the workforce of the future in a book I wrote called Meta Skills. It's called the Five Talents: Five Talents for the Future of Work. It's a deep dive into this uh, subject of so growing mechanization of everything. Like, what does it mean to be human in an era of intelligent machines? 
So that was my exploration for that. And I just put it out in paperback. So it's cheaper and it's been upgraded a little bit internally. Uh, just came out on Amazon this week as a print book and Kindle book. Kindle. No audio version? I'm thinking about it. Audio takes uh, a lot of time to do. It's like you got to record something. It takes about a week to do. And that's a week out of my schedule that I, I want to make sure that um, the sales are brisk enough that people are saying, now can you give me <laughs> the audio version? I, I did an audio version of the book before the, this, uh, which is called Scramble. And Scramble is a business thriller. So it's written as a thriller, but it's all business advice about agile strategy. So it's about a modern way to do strategy in business as seen through the lens of uh, a fictitious company who's in trouble and has to fix their brand like in five weeks. If they don't, uh, there's going to be a huge shakeup. And so how do they do all that work in such a short amount of time? And there's a system for doing that or a way to think about that that I talk about. So it just, you know, it's one thing to talk about how to do stuff in business in a sort of bullet point way, you know, take, do these 16 steps and you'll be fine. But real life uh, fights back, right? When you try to apply things, you know, people get in your way, there are hurdles, stuff happens. So how do you deal with that stuff? And so that's what scramble is about. It's like, okay, here's the system, but, but we have issues with our staff. We have competing, um, views of the future, personalities, all this kind of stuff that actually happens in the real world is in this book called Scramble. And that one makes a really good uh, listen. I mean, it's great to listen to a story. So I, I spent some time, a couple of weeks on that one, recording that as a dramatic interpretation of of the story. And I may do more of these because this turned out to be really popular. It's selling really well. And uh, especially among CEOs who tend to be like, no, all that bullet point stuff, all those lists and everything. I, you know, I have people to do that stuff for me. That's uh, more technical than I need to be. I'm all about the people. So if you're all about people and ideas, uh, I think a story works really well for that. Well, it's certainly uh, been a genre popularized by Patrick Lencioni. Yeah, Lencioni. Yeah, that, yes. So it's in that vein. Yeah. Very good. Marty, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Dom. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.